And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Lord, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We read this far in God's holy word. Now, Mark is usually fast-paced. He moves from action to action. And remember his favorite word? Immediately. But here in our passage, we notice something uncharacteristic of Mark. He has slowed down, and we could even say that he's hovered longer over this story. In fact, he uses 272 words to give us this story, while Luke, telling the same story, uses only 144 words, and Matthew dispatched the account with only 110 words. He's actually longer than both Matthew and Luke. Mark still tells the story with dramatic gusto, don't get me wrong, and yet his use of many words shows there's something important here. Mark wants us to spend more time and make sure we've got the lesson of this passage. And the lesson is staying dependent on Christ. We must keep remembering and keep believing that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And the opposite being true, with Christ, we can do all things. So our main point is this, perpetual dependency is an essential lesson. We always need Christ. When doing the Lord's work, when dealing with evil powers, and even for believing in Christ or praying. So first, when doing the Lord's work, we start our passage Jesus and the three disciples are returning from the mountain where Jesus was transfigured in brilliant glory. In verse 14, Jesus and the three are approaching the other nine disciples. So when you read in verse 19, uh, 14, the disciples, it means the other nine disciples. So there's Jesus and the three approaching the nine disciples. So you're clear on that. They're down here. They haven't gone up to the mountain. These nine disciples were in the trenches learning how forcefully the scribes can argue, verse 14. 
in verse 15, the crowds saw Jesus approaching and immediately left the disciples and ran to Jesus and greeted him. Verse 16, Jesus then asks the scribes what they were arguing about with his disciples. But in verse 17, the answer came not from the scribes. The answer came from someone in the crowd, Mark writes. Someone in the crowd turns out to be the father of a boy who had a demon. This father's request was what had started all this arguing. The boy's father now explained to Jesus that while Jesus had gone up up to the mountain, this father had approached the disciples because the father aimed to ask Jesus himself for help. Notice this quote from verse 17. Teachers, I brought my son to you. Then in verse 18, the father described further the problem. A demonic spirit was in the boy, and since the demon itself could not speak, as we'll see uh, Jesus later uh, identify and allude to when uh, Jesus says uh, to the the unclean spirit in verse 25, uh, you mute and deaf spirit. So the demon itself could not speak, and so the demon also kept the boy from speaking. But that was not all. The demon had also been giving the boy seizures and convulsions. Uh, You might not think that that's so bad. It's suffering for sure, but has it not evoked your compassion yet? Regularly, the boy would get thrown down and experience foaming at the mouth, grinding of his teeth, and all of his muscles becoming rigid. The father had the idea of bringing his poor son to Jesus in order for Jesus to drive out the demon and remove all the consequential problems. However, since Jesus had been absent at that moment, when the father came to the nine disciples, this father was forced to be content to present his poor, demon-possessed boy to the disciples, the other nine disciples. And the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. The symptoms of the boy you might recognize are similar to what today we would call an epileptic seizure. However, all three Bible authors, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, label this not as a medical problem needing healing from Jesus, but always as demonic activity requiring an exorcism by Jesus. So this is not having to do with epilepsy at all. The symptoms are the same, grant you, but this is a demonic problem. So the nine disciples are learning something while Jesus is up on the mountain. They're learning that they could not get this demon out. And it came as a surprise to them. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus had sent the disciples to preach and to, quote, have authority to cast out demons. And in Mark 6, verse 7, Jesus gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Ever since then, possessing power over the demons had been the consistent experience of the disciples, such as Mark 6, 13, where the disciples cast out many demons and anointed the oil with oil many who were sick and healed them. But suddenly, now, these nine disciples are surprised to learn that they could not cast out a demon. They must be doing something wrong. They needed Jesus to re-educate them in order for them to continue to do the Lord's work. It brings us to our second point when dealing with evil powers. Verse 19, Jesus then erupted into a rare diatribe expressing disappointment regarding the whole generation living at that time. He's talking here about the condition of man. Faithless 
Jesus had had enough of unbelief. The crowds were faithless. The disciples were powerless. There's a demon in this boy. Both the boy and the demon are speechless. And here Jesus says in verse 19, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. What's the remedy that Jesus commanded at this point? Not let's have more teaching for the crowds right now. Not let's have more disciple time and teaching for the disciples alone right now. No, rather Jesus asked for the boy to be brought to Jesus so that in front of everyone, the disciples and the crowds and the scribes, in front of everyone, Jesus could drive the demon out. And what was needed for Jesus to conduct was a public and visible demonstration of the power of Jesus to set people free. And once he proved that he was able to free a boy from a speechless demon, Jesus would simultaneously be proving that Jesus was able to free anyone in that generation from their faithlessness. In verse 20, the boy was brought to Jesus. When the unclean spirit within the boy saw Jesus, the unclean spirit reacted. And what would a speechless spirit do to communicate to Jesus its dislike and displeasure for him. I'll give you one guess. You would take the boy that's housing you and again cause convulsions to your host. And again, I say that poor boy. So there's a spiritual showdown between Satan, the destroyer of life, one of his servants, and Jesus, the giver of life himself. And as Jesus was standing there, The demon caused the boy to roll around violently, we're told, once again, including demonic foaming at the mouth without speaking a word. Now, while this continued to happen, we're told in verse 21 what Jesus did. Jesus then turned to the boy's father and asked him how long this sort of seizure activity had been happening to the boy on account of the demon. And the father answered that it had been happening since childhood. Do we have your compassion yet? The duration of the suffering. So since this was not some recent or temporary problem, but consistent with the darkness of demons, we see the mean, relentless, and murderous nature of these convulsions as now explained by the Father further in verse 22. The demon has often cast the boy into fire and into water to destroy him. You ever have a child that you're responsible for walking close to water, walking close to fire, walking close to some danger, and you say to the child, especially now, be careful. At those moments, the demon inside of the boy would throw him all the more towards the danger of the fire or the water. The father was helpless, the boy was vulnerable, the demon was merciless. The threat of injury or death was real, long-standing, and ongoing. Injury to the boy was not some occasional collateral hazard, but the sinister intent of this demon. And how many times must it have happened? How many scars must he bear? We're not told. But we know that this boy could not speak. We know that this boy could not hear. And yet the boy saw all that was happening to him, like he was trapped in some tortured version of an aquarium. Jesus wants the crowd to understand this. He wants his disciples to see this. He wants us, as we study this, to see the real scene. 
Also, that the father had close affinity with the boy and the father was suffering right along with his son. If you know someone who's suffering, you know what it's like to watch someone you love suffer. And so now he's pleading with Jesus. Notice his words in the end of verse 22. Have compassion on us and help us. Mark wants us to see that it's not just the boy, but the father who has long been suffering. And recently, this father had been deflated by the inability of the disciples to help by removing the demon. The father had come to look for Jesus for compassion and help, but now this father in verse 22 has expressed his own doubt regarding the ability of even Jesus to overpower this demon. The demon was currently active. Right there in front of all of them, including Jesus himself, even while this father had this very conversation with Jesus, some compassion from Jesus might soothe the father and maybe even the son. And Any help that Jesus could perhaps provide, for example, could you set limits for the sake of protecting the boy's life or make it only happen during the daytime or not have these dangerous moments close to a fire. Anything that you could do would help. And the man literally said to Jesus, quote, if you can do anything. Brings us to our third point, even for believing in Christ or praying. Verse 23, Jesus then echoed back to that father the basic concept the man had just expressed to the great rabbi. If you can, he said. Then Jesus made a statement that was sorely needed. A statement needed in a faithless generation, a statement needed by a doubting father, and a statement needed by powerless disciples. Jesus said, all things are possible for one who believes. The faith of disciples was already in question implicitly, but now this father's faith was being directly questioned by Jesus within this conversation. You could ask it this way. Father of this boy, who do you believe rules the universe? This demon? All right then. Since God rules the universe, why don't you believe that God and the Son of God would be able to take care of this demon? Notice that in a very brief amount of time, Jesus has put the focus back to where the focus ought to be. The focus should be on the unlimited power of God in whom our faith is placed. So verse 24, we see the immediate response of the boy's father to the rebuke and the instruction of Jesus. This father's response has become famous to us as Bible readers and Bible readers around the world. The famous quote is this, I believe, help my unbelief. And what this statement revealed was that it's possible at the very same moment, to have inside of the very same person a mixture of two seemingly mutually exclusive things. That inside of the same person can exist belief and unbelief at the same time. I believe, help my unbelief. And it teaches us this. If you don't get anything else from the sermon, take these three words. Prayer is weakness. Prayer is weakness. 
Prayer is weakness of faith. Prayer is not strength expressed, which is focused on self. Look how strong my faith is. No, prayer is weakness expressed, focused on Christ. I need you. The boy's father, mixed as he was with both faith and not faith, both belief and unbelief, was now properly focused on Christ. And this man was quickly making spiritual progress because of it. He'd already moved from just being another one of the many people across the generation who were faithless to being a person who possessed, along with his unbelief, belief. I believe. He had belief. He had faith. Along with his unbelief, along with the rest of the faithless generation, he had something else. He had faith. He had belief. He had moved. He's no longer in the broad masses of the generation. Though the father was still weak, admittedly weak, at least he himself was aware of that problem. He was coming to Jesus with that problem. Help my unbelief. In moments, he had already come to Jesus with a prayer saying, help me with that problem. Help me with my unbelief. What is he doing? He's praying. He's doing what we are called to do in our weakness, to pray. Believing prayer brings us to Jesus who conquers our remaining unbelief. All that this father needed was Jesus and any amount of faith, any tiny, tiny amount of faith. Faith the size of a mustard seed still connects us to the whole Christ. Strength of his faith, the size of his faith, the condition of his faith is no longer a part of this passage. All this passage has done is said he has faith which connects him to Christ. And Christ takes it from there. The attention goes where it should on the authority of Christ, on the ability of Christ, on the consequent actions of Christ. So verse 25, the command from Jesus to this demon was fuller in this case than it is in the other exorcisms in three ways. Number one, Jesus included a description of the nature of the demon by calling it a mute and deaf spirit. Number two, Jesus told the demon that it was not the disciples commanding, but it was Jesus himself who said, I command you. And thirdly, Jesus then not only commanded the demon to leave the boy, but also added a statement, added a command that is not often seen in the exorcisms. Here he says that the demon must never return. What a wonderful reassurance that statement must have been to the boy's suffering father. It's over. It's over for good. Verse 26, we get the results in three actions. Number one, the demon cried out. He couldn't just go on as a mute demon. He now is all of a sudden having the ability to cry out. And he uses this one occasion to exercise his further rebellion against Christ by crying out. Number two, the demon convulsed the boy terribly one last time. I suppose that's predictable. And again, I say that poor boy. And third, the demon came out. Ha! The demon came out. The demon had been responsible for the boy's movement, so now the boy lay still, appearing to all as if he were dead, and even the, those in the crowd were crying out loud, he's dead. That wasn't true. Verse 27, Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him up. And even though Mark is accumulating words here about death and rising, death and resurrection, this verse only alludes to 
death and resurrection. The boy had not been killed. He had not died there. He had been under the power of Satan, and Satan had been dethroned. And the boy had been released, and life had been affirmed. And here Jesus is not raising a boy from the dead. He's simply helping an exhausted boy stand up to his feet. It's not a resurrection, but it's insight into the future meaning of Jesus' own resurrection one day. Satanic power brings death, but God's power brings resurrection life. So in verse 28, the public event was over, but Mark's not finished. Mark, who is always so fast-paced. Mark, who just says immediately this and that and these actions and moving on. Mark has a postscript. Mark wants to make sure that we've got this. And so Mark continues in verses 28 and 29. Jesus left the scene, he entered a house. And in the Gospels, a house is always a place where you can leave the events of the public ministry of Christ and have it interpreted for you not by some narrator, but by Christ himself. The house is presented as a place of private questioning and instruction. The disciples who must still be smarting after their public humiliation of being unable to do what Jesus could do. And isn't that probably what the scribes were harassing them about and arguing with them about all the way back in verse 14? We're genuinely puzzled about the reason for their failure in this case to drive out the demons. So the disciples put it to Jesus privately in the house with this question. Why could we not cast it out. And in verse 29, we get a surprising statement of Jesus that's oh so necessary per Mark. Apparently, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ had attempted to cast out a demon without praying. That brings us to the main thrust of the whole passage. Mark has driven it home to us, hasn't he? The disciples, who had become so confident in their own authority that they tried to drive out an evil spirit without praying to God for help. All demons in all categories are those who cannot be tackled in human strength. The disciples lost their sense of dependence on Jesus. They lost their awareness of his unique authority and them having authority only derivatively because they are disciples of the great rabbi. The disciples became blasé and thought of themselves as now, you know, natural experts in removing demons. What the disciples were learning that day was that in spiritual conflict, there's no such thing as automatic. Their public humiliation had been a necessary part of their re-education to the principles of the kingdom of God from the king himself, where Jesus would say, like in John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's the dependence on Christ that's the lesson, Mark says. The actions of Jesus pointed forward to a time when he himself would undergo the violent and abusive powers of Satan and experience the weakness of his beating. And Jesus would not simply appear to be dead, but would actually die after the attack on that cross. Then, in triumph 
through his own resurrection, Jesus would conquer all the powers of darkness at once. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Colossians 2.15, at the same time as Jesus was pointing forward to the cross, he was also laying down the principles of all spiritual service in his kingdom. God uses the weak things in the world to destroy the influence of the things that are mighty. Every believer in Jesus must take this lesson to heart and always keep it with us. It's an essential and perennial lesson. It's unassailable. It must be with us. We have freedom from demonic control, certainly, but we are ever reliant on our Savior. Consider how Paul wrote in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 6. And raised us up with him makes us mindful again of Jesus taking his hand and raising up that boy. A picture of what he does for us. And because we have the spirit of Christ dwelling within of us, within us, all of us may rest assured in this promise in 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But it's so important to get that right. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. The spirit of Christ is greater than the devil. That doesn't mean we're greater than the devil. It means that the spirit of Christ in us is greater than the devil. So today we are free of demonic control, aren't we, in our lives because of the power of Jesus, the Son of God, whose spirit is living in us, who is greater than the devil who is in the world. Still, we ought to be mindful and not minimize the power and presence of the devil. Only the power of the resurrected Christ can deliver us from the schemes and clutches of the evil one. So what have we seen tonight? Perpetual dependency is an essential lesson. We always need Christ. Mark slowed down his whole gospel account to make sure we would get this lesson, that we need Christ. We always need Christ. When we're doing the Lord's work and dealing with evil powers and even for believing in Christ or praying. So I have two concluding applications. Number one. God uses our failures to deepen our dependence on Christ. God uses our failures to deepen our dependence on Christ. It's one of the lessons coming out of this passage. Look at the disciples. We always look down our nose at the Old Testament saints and how they failed. We look down our noses at even the New Testament disciples and how they failed. But it's a picture of us, our failures. And the main question for the disciples, could they drive out the demon or not? No. They could not but Jesus can. And you've got to sit in that and marinate in that and take the lesson from that. If they were to keep relying on Jesus to do the Lord's work, then Jesus would enable them to drive out the demon in his name, in his power. Isn't there a lesson for us there? 
that our failures lead us back to the truth of staying dependent on Christ? Listen, three of these disciples got to go up that mountain. Just prior to this, they, they got to go up on that mountain and they got to see Jesus in a glimpse of his glory for a moment. A mountaintop experience for sure. It's wonderful. And back in verse 5, we're told Peter wanted to build tents on top of the mountain. He wanted to stay there on the mountaintop. But God wants us down here in the trenches, sharing grace with people who are hurting. Does not our compassion go out to this boy? Does not our compassion go out to this father? And are there not people in our generation suffering similarly? They're hurting. God wants us to be distributors of his redemptive love. Remember that we will fail in that. And be encouraged that God uses our failures to deepen our dependence on Christ. Failure is painful. In this case, it's embarrassing. Public shame. Public embarrassment. That can happen to us. And the question is, what's our response to our own failure? Will we be bitter or better? Spiritual victories in the past do not guarantee us spiritual victories today. We must not trust ourselves. We must not trust our resume, our own background, our abilities to do this, our long track record of doing this well. No, no, no. Either our response to our failure can be life-altering in a good way, or our response can make us learn lessons you'll never forget. Aren't the ones that were most painful the ones that you never forget? We learn dependence. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the mountaintop. And when you come down from the mountaintop, you remember, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Our weakness drives us to Christ in prayer. My limitations point me to the unlimited resources of Christ, and our humility pushes us towards his sufficiency. So, Application point number one is God uses our failures to deepen our dependence on Christ. And then number two, last one, God uses our failures to discipline us in prayer. You ever think that God disciplines us in prayer? A faith that depends on Christ is a faith that prays to Christ. Martin Luther said that the prayer of faith is in a way omnipotent. The faith that connects us to Christ, the glorious one. If we don't have this sort of believing prayer, then Christ will correct us. We'll get turned back to Christ, which is where we should have been all along. We, we keep getting moved back to Christ. There's a test in James 5, 14 to 15. Let me read it to you. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The test is this. Do we get distracted by the oil in the passage? Do we get distracted by the phrase that says the prayer of faith will save him as if we, by our action of praying, can save or heal? The lesson we must recognize is that it's the Lord Jesus Christ whom we need. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who heals. Whether it's prayers or oils, it's the Lord we need. It's the Lord who heals. That's the test. It's a test similar to what we found in our passage tonight. If we focus on our part, our praying, we'll get prideful about our praying. Look how good I pray. Look how much I pray. And I'll tell other people how much I pray. It's pride in praying, if you can have such a thing. And if we focus on the size of our faith, 
We get prideful about our faith and ironically stop relying on Christ at that point. We must always focus on Christ and watch out for our own pride rooted in our past accomplishments. This is a lesson arising out of this passage, especially with regard to prayer. So whenever we get into the realm of the spiritual and prayer is needed, whether it's family worship after supper, leading a formal ministry, if we approach it in our own strength, our own pride, our self-sufficiency, trusting in our own track record, we've lost the important spiritual perspective before we've begun. When we fail in that way, we ask ourselves hard questions. Why did this happen? We come to Jesus in prayer. We come to Christ in prayer, aside, in the house, privately, and we say, why did this happen? I truly want to understand. Is there some correction for me here? And if the answer comes back, you need to depend on me in prayer before you try anything, then we need to be disciplined in our prayers in exactly that way because prayer is weakness. Again, those three words, just take those. Prayer is weakness. It reminds us we can't do this. This day is too much for you. This week is too much for you. You can't make it through this week in the Christian walk. It's too much for you. You believe that? Because that's true. Prayer is weakness. Prayer reminds us. Prayer brings us back to the Christ who can discipline and correct us. And Jesus was so direct. Did he not say here, faithless generation? He's including the disciples in that. The disciples are arising out of the very same generation, aren't they? The generation that was faithless. They had faithlessly approached their work as disciples, doing the spiritual work of combating unclean spirits. Jesus is the only authentic believer in God the Father and his power. So we've studied this passage tonight and found a lonely Savior on the mountaintop, coming down and in anguish, finding the condition of his followers. Is it any different for us? On the mountaintop, Peter was short-sighted, wanted to build tents, stay on the mountain, stay in the glory. Here in the valley, Peter and the others failed in prayer and had unbelief mixed in with their faith. We need to have dependence on Christ, but it's not about the size of our faith. This is a lesson that Jesus taught his disciples again over in Luke 17, verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. His answer, you see, is it's not about the size of your faith. You don't have to ask me to increase your faith. Stop looking at your faith. Look at me. The key is not the depth or the quality of our faith. The key is the person to whom the faith is directed. And this father of this boy got it right, and all of Jesus' disciples got it wrong. The father of this boy, you could criticize. You could say, oh, he's got weak faith. He's got small and mixed up unbelief all in with his faith. But at least he's looking to Christ. See? The disciples had faith that was weak and small, and they needed to be disciplined to even understand that that was the problem before attempting to do any spiritual work at all. I'll end with this. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Let's pray. Father in heaven, humble us.